Welcome to Carito Connects. I'm your host, Jen, and I've been conversing with friends around the world about life challenges and impactful moments. Conversations on this platform look at answering the questions, how we overcome challenges and how our experiences shape who we are and the work we do today. I hope this work can inspire you on your own personal and individual journey. Let's dive right in. Hello, my guest today is Larry Xiao, founder of La Salsa Taipei. A trained salsa dancer, Larry grew up in Taiwan, went off to the US and circled back here starting La Salsa Taipei Dance School 11 years ago. Hi, Larry. Hi, Jennifer. <laughs> Larry and I met a few years ago back at our old alma mater stomping ground when I was working there in the alumni office. What fascinated me about Larry's story was how he defied all odds and created his salsa school in Taipei at a time when salsa dancing wasn't even very popular then. I'm excited to have Larry share his journey on how his passion for dancing merged into a way of life for him and the creation of La Salsa and the encounters he had along the way. Thank you, Jennifer. Such a nice intro. <laughs> I feel so flattered. I feel like some kind of... Uh, Salsa Crusader, I'm here to save Taipei, you know, let's inject some dance culture into this city. Well, <laughs> that's kind of how I felt when I met you. <laughs> so I mean, I'm really excited to have you here and um, mm -hmm. I'm just going to let you take the mic from here and, and, you know, go as far back as you want, kind of shape this conversation okay. and share that journey. I think I'll start with just a little short background for our listeners. Um, I am trained in visual arts. Um, I have an MFA in, from San Francisco Art Institute, and then I moved back to Taiwan in 2007. Um, during that time, I was still pursuing my art, um, but I needed to make some money. Um, I picked up salsa when I was in grad school. So my instructor, when I was leaving San Francisco, told me, Larry, teach, because it will make you a better dancer. So naturally when I moved back to Taiwan I'm not really connected to anyone in the art scene but I, I needed money so I just started teaching um, that's how everything started so where but where did you start teaching were that were there other schools here already or you just kind of said all right I'm just gonna put up a flyer and say well, you know Wednesday well, night at the park where in Taiwan it's very popular and the I, parks I, around here are, are I did aunties. turn out flyers um <laughs> Back then in Xinyi uh, Chu, Xinyi District, there's a club very popular called Brown Sugar. Um, every Sunday night, there's free salsa dancing and they have a live band. Oh. So I would go there and meet people and then dance with them and go, hey, my name's Larry. I dance. Uh, if you like my style, I'm going to teach uh, every Monday or every Wednesday. And then I will go out and rent studio space from uh, there's ballroom studios, there's hip hop studios, um, the rent's not very expensive, then um, yeah, I did print out you know little flyers with myself on it, with my email and my phone number. Like, come, come take some salsa lessons. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how it started. Yes, yes. And then so how did you transition from, you were saying you were still pursuing your, your art degree and then you were teaching on the side Yes. And then how did that kind of, I guess... Ha where the switch where the, happened? Yeah, where the switch happened. Well, from 2007 all the way until 2014, I actually had a art practice. Um, I, I took a job as um, art researcher for an institute in uh, Hong Kong. 
They're called Asia Art Archive. And then um, what they do is they collect catalogs, they document um, all the uh, flyers and what happens in each country in um, Asia. So they need a local researcher that will go to all the art openings. And then so I was very lucky to um, apply and get the uh, position as the researcher for Taiwan. Wow. And I used that job to meet and make my uh, connections in the art world. And then, you know, besides writing my report, okay, this happening, <laughs> this uh, opening, I met so-and-so, and then I have to send back all the um, catalogs and printed materials that I um, collect. But at the same time, I have my practice, so I would tell these gallerists uh, or people I meet, like, oh, hey, by the way, I make art. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and eventually, starting from 2009, I had a few shows. Um, in 2010, I was invited to be uh, to be a part of Taipei Biennial. Um, so for me, that was a milestone in my art career. Um, and then I had a commercial solo show. I had a um, alternative space solo show. Um, the practice went all the way until uh, 2014. Uh, my son was born in 2012. And eventually, there was just too many things to juggle. I had visual art practice. I have a newborn son. Uh, teaching and salsa. Teaching salsa. The, and my salsa career was growing at that time. So I had to make some decisions. So by 2014, I went full-time salsa teaching. Like, why did you decide to go salsa versus continue pursuing? You did visual arts, right? So yes. you were a visual yes. artist. Uh -huh. Well, a good friend of mine um, always told me that she thought, I should do something that engage with people more on a regular basis. And then um, the reward, everything you do um, in, in visual art, there's the reward when you finish your artwork. Um, you don't get that reward right away. You have to wait until you finish the whole body of work. And then there's a gallery that will show your work. And by the end of that, it's like um, artists cutting an album back then when they sell CDs. Um, it's harder to just release a single. You have to finish eight songs at least or 12 songs before you can, okay, I got a new album I'm releasing. And that's when you reap the rewards. Well, I have to stay in the studio all day and making work and you know, it will take at least six months or more before you can get a show um, or get a body of work ready. Um, so it's, it's very isolating, but with salsa teaching, Every time you go, uh, the class is 40 minutes to one hour. By the end, if you know, hopefully the class went well and all the students are happy, they're happy smiles. That's my reward right away. Instant gratification. Yes. <laughs> and then, you know, eventually I find myself becoming a happier person. There's always that image of the struggling artist. Um, there's few exceptions, those people who are just perfect for art making and being in the studio and uh, they are happy that way. But uh, for most people, it's, it's hard work, you know, being isolated and just be in your mind and dealing with yourself and creating work. So um, maybe it's uh, for my own uh, mental health sake, I should dance more, I should teach more. Mm. So I made that decision. Um, and also, uh, I met my wife through uh, dancing. Uh, a lot of people think she's my student, but she's not. Like, we went out social dancing, so she's my equal. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, she's got a background in marketing. Uh, she went to Furen Dashi, 
very, very talented lady. And um, so during my time uh, teaching, wow, yeah, we really have like a whole team of yeah. people teaching. That's awesome. Yeah. So, okay, I want to take a break from this and I'm mm -hmm. going to kind of rewind and go back a little bit to that decision for you to move back to Taiwan at the time. Mm -hmm from the US, because mm -hmm. you could have pursued uh, your visual arts career in the States mm -hmm. uh, if you didn't come back here. So, you know, what was the, the decision for you to move back to Taiwan? And when you came back to Taiwan, was that also, you know, was that easy for you? Was it a little bit frustrating for you to be a visual artist here mm -hmm. and trying to navigate the environment here? Uh, your parents uh, live here, um, you know, was that kind of, you know, again, not really fully stereotyping, but, you know, Asian parents mm -hmm. of that generation, usually it's like, oh, my kid's an artist, you know, very, I have had a few episodes where I've had very encouraging parents, you know, who, mm -hmm. who support their kids all the way, you know, doing what they want to do. But of course there are stories, as we know, where parents are like, you know, you're going to be a starving artist. How are you going to support yourself? So I was just a little curious in mm -hmm. terms of that dynamic for you mm -hmm. when you chose to come back here and how did you navigate that environment? Well, in 2007, I just finished grad school and I started my art practice a little bit. A um, few of the most important things I was considering about moving back uh, primarily is because my parents were aging. They were pretty old. Um, they have myself, my younger brother and two other kids um, and they all live uh, overseas. And for me, it's just thinking, um, I, I want to spend some time with my parents before they're no longer here. Um, so that's part of the consideration. And also my career in visual art allows me to be, uh, I, I have more uh, flexibility. Yeah, as they I call can. it now, the nomadic, like nomadic lifestyle, yeah. like work from home nowadays. <laughs> this is back in 2007. So yeah. <laughs> and, and back then, I think, um, with grad school, we're exposed to a lot of different um, art practices around the world, what's, pra uh, what's popular at the time, uh, what are some work that's being done. Uh, we are required to know what's going on. And then China was really hot with their visual art back then. Um, I didn't know what to think about Asia, but I thought besides coming back to Taiwan to hang out with my parents, um, I can pursue a career maybe here, see what's possible here locally, but also consider tai Taiwan as a springboard to uh, visit China. Mm. Um, so combining all those reasons and uh, I was ending uh, a, a relationship <laughs> at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was like, okay, well that's just, you know they say th there's three things that's really um, uh, challenging for people. One is, uh, you know, breaking up. One is changing careers, and one is moving. Mm. So I was doing all three of those at the same time in 2007. Go, let's have an adventure. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a, an impactful moment for you, 2007. It was. This, it was. These, like you said, these three points that you, you know, decided to yeah. say, all right, ending relationship, heartbroken, packing yeah. up, moving. Let's do this. Yeah. I got over it very fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I went out dancing. I met my wife. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And just, I saw her. I said, oh, she's so interesting. I want to get to know her more. 
Ah. Yeah. And then uh, we just started to hang out more and eventually we got married. Right. It sounds mm -hmm. wonderful. That's very encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, the, I mean, I guess the, story, uh, the, the moral of that story is you have to take that leap of faith, right? You never know what's going to be on the other side of the door. Yeah. Um, and I think also being in school for so long, because the training that we have, the assumption we have is that you go to school and then you study really hard, you go to a better school, you study really hard, and then you just dive right into your really high paying job. That's what kind of, um, that's the, uh, I, I guess some Asian parents, that's their exp um, expectation. expectation. They, yep. they hope that will happen for the sake of their kids. And um, for me, uh, I've, I didn't, I got really antsy at the end, towards uh, the end of my uh, education. I wanted to start uh, working. I wanted to, there's all these years of education and training with all these things in my head. And then I'm like, well, I want to do something with it. I don't want to just stay in school. Um, so there's that desire to, to just jump and go to someplace and make a mess. Let's do something. Right. So, um, and also, you know, that relationship wasn't going well. Um, combining with all those, with my parents aging, it's like, let's go. Yeah. It made sense. It made sense. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm guessing your parents were really excited that you came back. They were, they were. Were they very supportive of what you were they doing? Were I'm just like a little bit curious uh, in terms of just that dynamic. That's why I keep bringing it back. I in have. terms of what, how, you know, and I, and I say this because, uh, you know, for you and me, in terms of the community members we know of, mm -hmm. and I'm sure other listeners who are listening to this might can relate, is that parental child relationship as an adult, right? Like as you're, you're coming back as an adult, you're your own person, you've gone out, you, you know, you've seen the world, you've done your thing, and now you're kind of coming back, but there's, they're still your parents. So they're still kind of treating you like a kid. So how do you, how do you navigate that? dynamic and relationship I, right and okay, again two things, two things. <laughs> okay okay first one is i have to thank my parents because they don't interfere with what i do that much okay there you go great <laughs> they do have an opinion about it okay <laughs> but they don't actually like interfere interfere um so i know how they so you're feel. lucky you're they're, lucky they're not they're not a, you know they're not very happy about it but they don't get in the way. And uh, the second thing is I've, I'm a very rebellious person um, since high school. Um, so I, I draw that line, like here's where I need to function mm -hmm. and you can't cross that line. Okay. And then so um, we lived in peace <laughs> after. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I draw that line and you know, they are very understanding um, parents. I think that's also very key that you said drawing that line mm -hmm. um, because I think for any of this kind of relationship to work you need to know the boundaries you know mm -hmm. and that goes for both parties right so both on your parents side and for you as well uh, which I think um, that's something other people can kind of take into consideration too of how do you draw that line well um, when I left um, Taiwan after finishing high school uh, I was in Seattle in a um, Christian school and I was in uh, amongst a group mm. of very nice people. <laughs> They're very accepting. Um, they come from very different background than kids from TAS. 
And then um, I had a lot of time to think about what I want to do with my life. So um, obviously there's the um, the, the values, like the values, values yeah. from, from TAS. Well, your um, a Asian parents wanting uh, the best for you, coming from a very prestigious um, international uh, high school. Then, oh, good college, good grad school, Job. job yeah right that's get married the, that's, that's the direction the you, you yeah. tend to be you're you're told to kind of pursue um but being away from my parents uh it gave me some time to think about um many ideas of my relationship with my parents uh, as taiwanese as a uh, chinese uh, chinese background and then xiao shun you know, just being respect how do you translate xiao shun? like filial piety like be respectful of your yeah. elders um and then I came to the conclusion, in order for me to be xiaoshun, it doesn't necessarily mean I need to do everything they want me to do. Um, but if I choose something, I better do it very well and prove to them that, well, if that's what I want to do, I'm going to be okay and make, make sure that they're not worried about me. So that idea was, uh, I, I came to that idea on my own, maybe freshman, sophomore year in college. And then so that just turned into like, a, um, you know, I, I live by that. If mm -hmm. I decide to choose something, I know art, visual art, uh, I better do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> or when you said salsa dancing, right? I better do a good job. Um, there's one other person that I, I want to um, bring to the story. Um, my RA in oh. my freshman year. Wow. Um, he knows about my background. We, we all live together, a f whole floor of boys. And then um, I was watching a lot of people having to take a part-time job um, outside of the school. I didn't need to because TAS background. So I told him like, maybe I need to learn about how the rest of the world works. I need to you know get a job. And he stopped me. He just like, Larry, you're fortunate that you don't have to um, do that. Do, do that. Yeah. So he told me everyone should do what they do best. If you don't have to do that, you should consider what you can do that other students that need to do a part-time job cannot do and do that well. And uh, that in, influenced me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's very um, wise. Like, yeah. like kind of like a great RA mentorship to, yeah. to he, be able he to... He was a good guy. They put it into perspective for you, right? Yeah. yeah. And, I have many little things like that. Little moments uh, like that. Right. Yeah, that's funny. I, I, that I, I, I can <laughs> definitely relate to you on, on that note as well. I was just sharing this with someone the other day too, that for my own college experience, the same. Um, I, my college roommate didn't get her passport until junior year mm -hmm. in, in college. And for kids like us, I mean, I was flying home twice a year. Right. Right. And, and, and also like you, I thought, I wanted to work on campus too, mm -hmm. but most of the kids who are working on campus were on scholarship, so they, they had to work, right? And right. So I, I had a very similar feeling to you. Like I was like, oh, I want to work on campus. Like I want to, you know, work at the bookstore or something. You know, I wanted to do something as well. But also it was like, well, because I didn't need to, and mm -hmm. therefore perhaps I should be also maybe putting my time elsewhere and pursuing something and doing, you know, doing it well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I can also relate to that. So then, I mean, this is great because then I feel like we can go, jump back into uh, creating La Salsa. Yes. 
And I wanted to ask you, so when you created La Salsa and during your time, I mean, it sounded like it was about six years or so, right? When you were, when you went to Brown Sugar and was doing those Sunday night classes and then teaching people on the side, pursuing mm -hmm. your virtual arts career, and then with your girlfriend, now wife, mm -hmm. um, promoting yourself and positioning yourself in the marketplace, what did you see in Taipei or in Taiwan in general with the salsa scene? Mm -hmm. um, you know, could you tell us a little bit about that? Like, I mean, was salsa around? Is it usually, was it more like the Latina community that was living here, working here, creating that for themselves? Because I mean, I that that's really part of their culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and how adaptable was the environment here to to salsa dancing and how you grew it. Like I said, I mean, you said earlier, I sound like a, you're like, you made me sound like a crusader. <laughs> crusader. I'm just curious if you could just share with us a little bit about, you know, yeah, the, the, the environment here uh, in Taiwan, in Asia perhaps, and yeah. what you saw that really not only filled your cup, like you said earlier, you know, salsa dancing and teaching it really made you a better person and you're really happy doing it. Uh, and what you saw to fill that, you know, and sure. where it's gonna go going yeah. forward. Yeah, I think in 2007, coming back here, um, it wasn't homecoming. It wasn't returning to home. It was really an adventure. It's like going to a new place. Because I left Taiwan for 13 years. Even though with uh, every visit, yeah. uh, there's a lot of change, changes that happen in Taiwan that I wasn't a part of. Um, my training in salsa was um, I danced for this dance company called Mambo Romero in San Francisco and I danced for their performance team for three years. So I'm very familiar with the scene over there. There's uh, Latino communities, there's uh, Latin band, there's salsa bands, um, a lot of Asian dancers, a lot of uh, Latino dancers, uh, African-American, um, all sorts of uh, ethnicity. And um, there's clubs happening every night. <clears throat> so coming back to Taiwan, um, I didn't know a thing about what's going on here. I didn't know if people dance salsa. Um, but it turns out there's a small community, mainly by a few expats who had some experience dancing salsa. So they, they were teaching. Um, there was this very talented Korean uh, dancer who moved to Taiwan, um, he was teaching and he's probably by far one of the strong, strongest instructor and dancer at that time. Um, so there's few people that, that are teaching but there isn't like a solid um, salsa community. Right. And it's a very different um, social dance than say ballroom or swing. Um, it's not hip hop because there's not the partner dance part. So uh, at Brown Sugar, there's usually a mix of people learning salsa from one of the uh, above mentioned instructors um, or ballroom people or people just there, club people. Yeah. They're there to, to drink and have a good time. Um, so I think everyone were kind of working independently. Um, the idea of a salsa studio wasn't wasn't formed until much later. People were just kind of um, inviting people who you meet on the dance floor and then opening, opening up classes, um, renting spaces. Um, at first, I didn't, have, I didn't have the idea of opening up a studio because my background was in the performance team. 
And so for me, I wanted to choreograph uh, with my art background and then also <laughs> dancing for performance makes team. Makes sense. It makes more sense <laughs> to be like, well, I'm going to start a performance team. You're pretty good. Come, come join me. <laughs> so um, aside from teaching group classes, just teaching people how to salsa dance for fun, I started choreographing right away. Uh, I created my dance company called Taipei Mambo Project. And uh, 2008, we, I finished my first choreography and I just started um, pushing for the team to perform locally at any occasion. Um, <laughs> and then I started applying for festivals internationally. And I showed them my videos. I go, hey, I have a choreography. Can I come to your festival and perform? So the idea of opening up a studio was uh, much later. Mm. Yeah. So your focus was primarily kind of like just coming, like you said, like you wanted to create a team and then like a dance group yeah. and then kind of travel around the world and perform. Mm -hmm. uh, then how, I guess it almost seems like, like a very natural transition that mm -hmm. the studio happened out of the team, right? Like you, you guys had the team and then... Yeah it kind of merged into like a, hey, this is kind of fun, but like, I don't yeah. want to be a part of the team. Can I just come and dance on occasion? And exactly. then more people kind of inquired about this and their friends inquired about it. And then somehow La Salsa happened. Mm -hmm. Well, I mentioned that my wife is in marketing. So at first she didn't know what we eventually will end up doing. But she just knew like, well, Larry, I, I, I need to shape you into a marketing. <laughs> you need to dress this way. You need to teach this way. <laughs> Make your cards this way. So she'll give me all sorts of advices in how to market myself. But um, I just, I didn't have to spend much time thinking about that because she'll help me. Uh, I just spend my time doing the creative side. Like, okay, I want to create this number. Um, and then my team members who performed for me, uh, we will hang out and then we will practice. And eventually, um, she just thought, why don't we open up, open up more classes? Then the team members becomes the junior instructors. Mm. <laughs> and, and then the first five people, then we started teaching more and more classes. We converted this little space, kind of like uh, unused living room space, uh, upstairs of where my father lives. And then uh, we registered that as a uh, Yeah. Uh, that's like... An office space. Yeah. Yeah. And then we started training there and then we started teaching there. And we had a program. Like, okay, Monday, we have this <laughs> class. It just organically, it organically merged. Like, yeah. it, you know, and that's how it happened. Yeah. And then over time, um, I kind of... She changed my mind about how I view team training and creating something, uh, a performance, versus teaching uh, more people, people in mass, yeah. and creating a studio where more and more people can get into this culture. So from, from the inception of creating your team to then the studio, along the way, were there any you know, ups and downs that you encounter? Were there at some point where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore? Or, you know, or, or was it pretty, pretty much a smooth ride? Like, you know, when they say things align, they mm -hmm. align. It just keeps going, you know, and things then... align, but I wouldn't say smooth <laughs> <laughs> because, because teaching, teaching in your own space is so much uh, more intimate and fun and easy. 
because you don't have to pay rent mm-hmm. you know, without the financial. Uh, the financial pressure then um, the financial reward was decent um, that was just me and my wife we didn't have a kid at that time um, so we were happy where we were but um, <laughs> as the marketing person she is she's like we gotta expand we gotta do better so she started pushing everyone to go to the next step and then um, we, the first studio we rented um, outside of our home is probably two, three times bigger than our living room. <clears throat> it requires uh, remodeling, uh, signing a lease and paying rent every month. So that, on. that pressure is on. <laughs> and we, we struggled. The first studio was hard. <laughs> like we were in the negatives for a oh, year and a half. It was very hard, um, but we, at, we gained a lot of experience. We start seeing um, things that we did wrong, yeah. things that we did right. Yeah. Um, for example, there's just so much passion for people who's involved in salsa dancing. So there's not the, uh, <laughs> you need that um, perspective on the side like, oh, 商业化的话, Who's going to walk into your studio and feel like this is a legit business right. or just a group of people having fun? Right, right. <laughs> I went to um, Home Depot, so uh, B&Q. B&Q, yeah. B&Q is our version of Home Depot. And then yeah. so for painting the walls, I looked for different paint. There's a red that's, yeah. that's uh, named Salsa. It's okay. Like, Great. We're using this. Yeah. We've got the whole team. We start got painting. We start painting. The red is way too heavy. It's like a it's like a heavy wine red. Okay, like so a burgundy. It, burgundy, like a burgundy. Yes, the whole space became small and with a lot of visual he- pressure. Heavy, heavy. And then so at first we were we, you know just full of ideals and we're gonna do this. Our look, our paint is called salsa, <laughs> but it didn't work. <laughs> and the location wasn't um, close to MRT. Uh-huh. It made it difficult for people to get there. Uh, get there. Yeah, so we struggled a lot <laughs> during the first stu- studio. Um, but then we took every mistake and all the experience we had with the first studio and we moved to Zhongxiao Donglu Sidan. Much more happening uh, this Area, year. Yeah. yeah. And um, that, that transition was smoother. much smoother. So everything you shared with us thus far, and I, and I know you had mentioned this before we started recording as well, any regrets leaving visual arts? And no. <laughs> that no, was not quick. at all. <laughs> because you, in, in the whole art ecosystem, <clears throat> you are the first person who makes something. And then uh, if you're good enough, then a gallery will sign you yep. for a show. Um, you sell your work. <clears throat> they take their commission. Um, you get paid. And the work is out there in some collector's home. And then that will go into eventually into um, art auction. Um, if I'm doing well in my career, that would increase the value of that piece of work. And then an auction that can sell more than what they purchased it for. <clears throat> we don't see that money. Okay, so that's part of it. Like, oh yeah, I guess I, I can live with that, it's fine. But at the same time, besides making work, I have to go out and meet people who will show my work. They're experts, who people who are really good at what they're doing. They'll go, yeah, your work is good. 
and there are people who don't know what they're doing and they have the uh, they have the <clears throat> resources that I will need as an artist yeah so eventually it start feeling like well I'm not doing any better than um, people who are working in corporate in corporate <clears throat> is still climbing um, um, already set out a <clears throat> game yeah and and makes it not so much fun like a lot of artists go into visual art because they want to have that artistic freedom to create but then you can't make a living if you don't play this game yeah and it takes a lot of time um, and for me it's like I'm willing to play that game um, but I do recognize it for being what it is mm -hmm. and then I have this um, dance business that I created created all on my own with my wife um, we really don't have any you know rules you, you can kind of do what you want right and so with that compared to this and then have a newborn it's like okay well I have limited time so how do I balance I need to cut something else I can't cut out my wife and my kid <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so the other will be just well visual art or dance it made a lot of sense. Like, well, let's let's put this on hold. Maybe I'll go back um, and make something down the line. Yeah, down, down the yeah. line. But I don't think I want to pursue a career in this field. Um, it's different not working in the visual art um, professional field versus not being an artist. Right. Right. I can still be an artist yes. on my own. I made this really cool um, <coughs> Minecraft helmet for my son for Halloween. <laughs> oh, I saw, you know? I saw that. You, I mean, you put it on, on Facebook, I think. And, you know, yeah, it's uh, using a Master of Fine Arts from San Francisco Art Institute to make <laughs> Minecraft um, costume. But I don't mind. I mean, when even making something so simple and, and fun, I still feel the joy of creating. Uh, creating. And then, especially when you know Anton goes out to trick or treat or see his friends, um, and the joy he gets. My dad the, made this. Yeah. <laughs> then there's the reward, and much faster. So I mean, that's that's what I wanted to to add to our conversation that it's no different. <laughs> and then you know, I wanted to ask for those listening who who do feel like they're kind of making this transitional career shift you know like you said making these choices and being practical about it right like mm -hmm. yes we need to financially be able to support ourselves mm -hmm. and maybe you are trained in a certain field but you are very passionate and very interested in this other field mm -hmm. uh, and you know there's always those saying like oh don't pursue your passion because you know you pursue your passion which is mm -hmm. which in translation means you know you can't make money by pursuing your passion um, and, you know, I think nowadays in the day and age we're in, a lot of times there's this conversation between do you go with what, do you do what you like to do because that's what you love to do mm -hmm. or versus the practicality of like I'm in this job and it's paying my bills and I have to be practical about it. Mm -hmm. What kind of suggestions would you tell listeners who are, you know, sitting here listening to this episode right now and thinking, that's such an amazing story. Like, you know, what a cool visual arts career. And then just said, all right, I'm opening up a salsa team. I'm oh, creating a salsa team and, okay. you know, going to open a studio. So I, I think if there's any <laughs> listeners that's in visual arts, uh, I want to encourage you that um, your education is very valuable. 
um, I I did train, I was trained in visual arts, but I think everything I'm doing in uh, dance right now, I'm using my training from my visual arts. Um, the transition for me is mostly because of time. So I'm not working in the professional visual art um, circle. Yeah. But to me, I'm still using all the same um, ideas about how to uh, choreograph. Um, how do I, um, how, how do I not decorate, uh, remodel my space uh, in order for it to function while keeping the um, aesthetics? Um, when we do our logo, how does that translate to how we use it, how it, how it is perceived? Um, basically, as a visual artist, um, you have like a desire to, to create so that cre that desire, the outlet for it is just change yeah. from the art visual artist field into my own business. Right. Um, it makes so much more, um, I, I have so much more freedom in, in uh, letting out that desire in just doing my own business. Um, and creating uh, this dance studio <laughs> in in a place that didn't have salsa right. um, studios before. <laughs> well, is there any other last words you have that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up? <laughs> One of my professors said something, uh, I think she said something like, everyone wants culture, but nobody wants to pay for it. Okay. And um, to combine that idea with my, what my, um, my RA said, um, you should do what you can. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to do La Salsa because everyone wants to have culture. And uh, I think I'm willing to pay for it. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you for your time, Larry. That was really nice. And I think we can look into doing something together as well. All right. Thank you, <laughs> if, if you're open to it. <laughs> of course. All right. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Curito Connects. For more Connects content, collaborations, and discoveries set to inspire you on your own individual journey, please head to our website at www.curito.co. Until next time, stay inspired and thank you for joining us at Curito Connects.